Welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. How dare Draco Malfoy tell Martin Bundle to go away? Lewis has stitched me right up here. He's supposed to be my mate. Midway through the flight, they suddenly decide that they want to put me in the overhead locker in the plane. Everybody in the Bears team found all these mouldy pears in the bottom of their bag. Felt his hand on me. And I look back and he says, we're going to get this picture, champ. Oh my goodness. That has got to be the worst attempt of a drop goal in televised history. Hello, my name is Simon Lazeby and I'm a presenter on Sky Sports. You may have seen me present sports such as the F1, international rugby, England cricket and golf from around the world. However, I wanted to come and give you some information about the TWS Sports Podcast. The TWS Sports Podcast is the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic students who interview some of the biggest names in sport. Each week, they speak to a different sports person and delve deep into their lives talking about the highs and the lows of their career and what makes them a top athlete in their sport. The TWS Sports Podcast were voted the best sports podcast in the world that promotes social equality. They picked up that honour at the 2021 Sports Podcast Awards. So if you're a sports fan and want to hear these great stories with questions from some amazing young people who promote autism, then the TWS Sports Podcast is the podcast for you. Tattanowood School is a school for autistic children and young adults and we have set this podcast up to provide our pupils with a fantastic opportunity to develop a range of skills whilst interviewing top sportsmen and women from a variety of different sports. Join us today on the TWS Sports Podcast is a former footballer. He played for teams such as... Is is that that Derby? Yep. Okay. Luton, Motherwell and Newport. Welcome to the podcast. Mark O'Brien. How's it going? How is everyone? We're good. Good, thanks. Before we start, we just wanted to say that if throughout this podcast, if you have any questions for about anything about our podcast, or you have a question about autism, then please ask. We like to answer your questions too. Uh, we like to start our podcast with some random questions before we start talking about your career. Are you ready? Okay. Who is the most famous person in your phone book? In my phone book? Um, I would have to say in my phone book, it would probably be Nigel Clough. Okay. So he was my old manager at Derby County. So I'd say most famous would have to be would have to be him for, for what he's done in his uh, in his life. If you All could right. trade li- okay, sorry, let me try that again. If you could trade lives with anyone for a day, who would it be and why? Oh, I'd, do you know what? Strangely enough, I'd exchange lives um, with any astronaut. For, for some reason, I just have a massive fascination with space and I would love to try and have one a, a day in space. I, I, I think I just love it. As long as you're not planning on doing something crazy like going towards a black hole. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think going towards a black hole. Unless you want to get that... spaghettied. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's something that I'd want to do, but just to say I've experienced that, I'd absolutely love it. If you could uh, could have any superpower, what would it be and why? I would love to fly. Flight? Yeah, I'd love Is to fly. Is that playing into the space thing, so you could just fly to space? Yeah, potentially. And then the fact that like I live away from Ireland, so I could always fly home every weekend, <laughs> I'd love that. Rather than have to wait in airports, I could just... Literally go up and fly over, mm-hmm. see the family. Yeah. Although if you want to go a bit higher than the oxygen allows, you'll also need 
need the ability to not really need it. <laughs> well, yeah, see, that's a tough one, that is. I think just flying to Ireland will do me better. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, watch out for air traffic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll make sure I'll keep an eye out for that. <laughs> Thank you for answering those questions. Let's chat about your career. We want to take you back to the beginning and talk about your childhood. What are your memories of growing up and did you always want to be a footballer? I'd say like me, earliest memories of growing up, um, football wasn't something that like I 100% wanted. Like I enjoyed playing football because of my brother, um, who's two years older than me and he was playing football. And I always thought to myself, um, like I wanted just to do what he'd done. But when I was, when I was younger, I used to do everything I enjoyed playing uh, Gaelic, like the Irish sport. Um, and even like a lot, of, not a lot of people knew, but I used to enjoy skateboarding when I was younger. And I used to like do all that with my friends. So football was never something. That was just uh, a kind of hobby that I was doing. And then as I got older, like people were telling me how, how well I was doing in football. And then once once I started to enjoy it that bit more, then football was, was all that I ever wanted after that. When you joined... Derby, your cousin Cliff Byrne was captain of Scunthorpe. Did that help you as a young man moving over to England to have a family member who had been through the same as you? Yeah, hundred percent. I think my cousin, my cousin, um, spoke to me like when I when I had a chance of moving over, and he was telling me, like he, he gave me the the kind of harsh reality of it, really saying it's easy to fly over, it's hard to stay there. So the hard work starts when you go over, but he was brilliant for me because, as I said, he was only um, not so far away from me in case like I needed family around me. He could always be down a motorway. And, yeah, no, he was brilliant for me. Like, kind of gave me an insight to what to expect, the hard training, the commitment, the the sacrifices that you need to make. But, like I said, he, he was uh, he was brilliant for me. And, as I said, he, he kind of gave me a, an eye-opening talk and, um, before I flew over. But I absolutely loved it. What was the best and worst thing about moving away from home at such a young age? I think the best thing moving away was the fact that I actually was able to move away to play football. It was all I wanted to do. And the fact that I was moving away for football, like I couldn't have think I couldn't have thought of anything better. But I think the hardest part moving away is obviously you're leaving your family and your friends that you've grown up with and your kind of security blanket of having everybody around you and then once I moved away, um, it was difficult at first, obviously being away from the family. But like I said, the plus side was I got to play football every single day. So it kind of softened the blow from being away from them like, for the for the longevity that I spent away. Join, join Derby with the likes of Robbie Savage, Chris Commons and Barry Barnum. That what sounds was like that banana. Like? <laughs> <laughs> it almost what? pronounced like banana too. <laughs> What was that like like to move to a team with some well-established players? Do you know what it was? It it was brilliant. Like I I was nervous because obviously, um, when you sign for a team like that, like they are a massive, massive club and they're a big name in England. And it was, uh, it was something I was looking forward to do. But like I was really nervous. And obviously, when you meet the likes of Robbie Savage and probably the year before I flew away you're watching match of the day and he's playing on, on Premier League. He's he's played in the Premier League, been there and done it. And like you say, it was uh it was it was nerve wracking and I was I was really, really nervous. But 
when you kind of meet these people and and you train with them and you get to know them, you realise like they are just these are my teammates now. These aren't people I'm watching through a TV anymore. So, uh, real moment, but I, I absolutely loved it. And as I said, I think Robbie Savage out of everybody when I was 15, 16, making an opportunity of getting into the force team, he was one of the main people that would look out for me and have his arm around me and make sure I was okay. So, like you say, it was um, it was it, it was brilliant uh, getting to know people like that. You made your debut for Dar- Derby, 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 Derby. Okay, <laughs> at six at sixteen, Nigel Clough. Yeah, these are the weirdest football names football <laughs> names I've ever had to say. <laughs> I know. The team were down three three nil at half time, and you came on. What are your memories of that? I remember like traveling down to the game. Um, and I didn't expect to play any sort of minutes. And uh, when half time came and they were 3 0 down against Watford, uh, like I went in at half time. And again, I was just thinking, because I'm 16, I'm there for the experience. Like I didn't think I had a chance of playing. And then when we came out for the second half, I remember I was sitting there with one of the other subs and he looked over the assistant manager's shoulder and he said, Oh, he said, you're coming on after 60 minutes. And I kind of sh- like shook my head thinking, no, I can't be coming on. And I remember um, I looked over the shoulder saying I was coming on after 60 minutes. But then I looked at the score at, at the scoreboard in the corner and I had 58 minutes gone in the half. And I literally just went so nervous. Like I went head to toe, like so nervous. And I remember I jogged up and down the sideline and Noisy Clough called me back and he said, look, he said, you're going on. He said, be a defender, kick it and head it. And that's all he said to me. And I just thought, brilliant. So <laughs> I ended up getting onto the pitch. He made it quite simple for me um, being so young. And once I went onto the pitch, like I said, I think the momentum of just playing football, like it, I didn't care whether I was down in the local field or when I, whether I was in a stadium. Once I played, I was fully focused on the game. And I loved every minute of it, every ball that came to me like the atmosphere of a stadium, I cleared a ball off the line, like everything that went on, um, it couldn't have gone any better. And I just loved it. And I wanted the game to continue and keep going and keep going because I was getting this. But it was after that moment of the game, it was kind of cemented that this is exactly what I want. I want to be a professional footballer. Like the stadium, the fans, everything uh, involved in it. I just loved every minute of it. Following on with Nigel Clough, what was Nigel Clough like as a person, as a manager? As a person and a manager. Um, as a manager, he was quite tough. Like, he was very kind of straightforward. He was, do this or do that. Like, there was no kind of, well, if you feel this way. Like, he was kind of very strict. Old school, I think you'd call it nowadays in football, where it was, like, a lot of running, a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of, like, kind of speak your mind when you're in the change room, stuff that I probably can't repeat. But, uh he was somebody who, like I said, if he likes you, if you do right by him, he was one of the most loyal people in football that, I, that I've come across till this day. Um, as a person, like when I went through difficult spells at, at Derby, obviously with, with the certain health scares that I had, um, he was he was like somebody who showed his genuine side and made sure my family were okay, made sure I was okay. And he was... He was very, very good on that behalf. Like he kind of treated me as one of his own kids because I was still only young. So he was able to 
differentiate between yeah he is a player in my squad but also he's a young lad he's a young 16 year old I need to look after him as well so I think he helped me a lot um, grow up and mature beyond the years like the times that I was at Derby like and as I said he, he always looked out for me but he wasn't short of being able to tell me off if I ever stepped down a line as well so I kind of had the best of both worlds really at that age of 17 you had a routine heart scan and that changed the rest of your life can you talk to us about that, please? Yeah, so I remember I made my debut when I was 16 and then it was the, the next season after that. I came back for a routine heart scan and after just making my debut, obviously you're going to think past the routine heart scan and everything's going to be totally fine. And I remember when I had the scan, the doctor called the physio into the room and closed the door and he told me, I had a, a minor leak in my aortic valve. So oh, no. Yeah, so it was it was it was quite difficult to take because they told me at, at the beginning it was something that I'd be able to play with for 50s. Like I won't need an operation for maybe 50, 60 years. A lot of people have this in their life and it doesn't affect them. So he said it was something just to keep an eye on. So I ended up um so I ended up following it up with more scans and I kept on training. But I, I never felt any of the symptoms that they were expecting me to feel, like lightheadedness, breathlessness, feeling tired and not being able to keep up and train. And so I felt fine. And we followed her up with more scans with specialists. And the more scans that followed, they realized it was progressing and getting worse. So um, as it was getting worse, I followed her up and they put me in touch with a surgeon later down the line. And the surgeon flew, like obviously my mom, my dad and the new uh, the Derby physio, we all went to the hospital for the consultant to talk to him just to see what he was going to say. And and this is me getting told, I think, an operation after 30, 40 years and I just thought football would be finished by then. And I went to see the, the surgeon and he spoke to me and he said, um, he walked into the room and he had a model heart in his hand and he turned around and basically said, look, Mark, your heart is three times the size of what it should be. And if you don't have an operation this year, you're going to die. And that kind of that kind of shocked me. And it was difficult to take. And I asked, um, and I think being 16 kind of went in my favour. I asked, can I play football? I didn't ask about anything else other than can I still play? And all he said to me was, he said, you'd be lucky to be down in the park with your friends, let alone um, play professionally. But he gave me the option of the operations to take. And I said, which one is the best option to give me a chance of playing? And he told me the one that I had was a pigskin valve that they put in. So um, he put a date. So I got told 20, 30 years. And when I met the surgeon, he told me you can do the operation in two weeks. So I had two weeks to kind of take in the information of needing open heart surgery. Um, I flew home to Dublin. And again, Nigel Clough was making sure I'm okay. Let me spend time with my family for those two weeks. And I went and had the open heart surgery surgery like not thinking what might happen but again it was um it was something where they told me I'd never play again but thankfully uh the operation was a success and I had an opportunity to play for 11 12 years professionally and it was something that like you say they never told me I'd do so anything after that was always uh going to be the best the best outcome really so you say football saved your life because if you had if you had a different job, you would not have been given health checkups. And it was only because you were a footballer that this problem was identified. 
Yeah, 100%. And I owe a lot of that to football. Same football did save me life because if I was still in Ireland, if I was still playing Sunday League back at home, you don't get these scans, you don't get these results, you don't get things um, to try and cover you. And and I was I was one of the lucky ones that got given that opportunity. And I was given that opportunity to get the scan. And, and football itself did save me life. So I do owe a lot to football. I owe a lot to Derby County. I owe a lot to Nigel Clough as a manager because I look at it and say, if it wasn't for him and looking after me after the operation, I may not have had a football career. So, like I say, I look at things differently now where at the time it was a shock and it was something where I didn't realise if I could play football ever again. But then also on the other side, now that I'm a bit older, I can look at it and say, football really did save me life. And I, I was lucky that I, um, I had the opportunity of playing football. There were some real characters in that Dolby dressing room. Can you talk to us about who were the Jokers and can you remember any funny pranks? Time to lighten the mood. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd say, again, Robbie Savage was one of these people who was... Uh, quite the joker like he, he was always quite he was always known as somebody who you'd hear before you see so you could hear him down the corridors you could hear them in the changing rooms and he was someone that um would play would play a lot of pranks on people i remember like for somebody's birthday like somebody wrapped all of that card and cling film around the whole thing again and again and again um there was times where there was a goalkeeper Stephen Boywater. And he's another person who's a bit of a kind of prankster. And we had a physio that he used to park his car as really close as he could to him every single day. So he couldn't get in on the driver's side. He'd have to get in on the far side and climb across the seats. And, oh, wow. Yeah, and they used to drive a Prius. So there's no middle panel. They had to climb over that. Um, I doubt the, the physio was very impressed with that goalie. Eh? <laughs> no, he actually wasn't. And there was one time he got up at... The physio would normally get into the training ground by, say, half seven, eight o'clock for all the players. And Boywater would get in at uh, seven o'clock and he moved his whole desk from his own office, from the physio's office, into the gym and set up his whole office in the gym. So he moved everything. So when everybody got in, he didn't know. He would loosen wheels on the end of his chair. Like There was just loads of stuff that went on. But it was all, like you say, oh. fun and games. But it was funny. I doubt. I doubt not for the physio. Once he were once the, once those those wheels gave way. <laughs> no, the physio. The physio. I think fell the first time, but then after that, he checked everything over and over and over again when he went into the when he went into his office because he just didn't know what was going to happen next. Um, you had a year left on your Derby contract, and you went in to see the manager Steve McLaren about the possibility of going out on loan or making it into the Derby squad. What are your memories of that conversation with the manager? Well, I remember we were away in Austria on a pre-season tour and I had a phone call from Motherwell um, and Stuart McCall was the manager at the time and he spoke to me and said he wanted to take me on loan um, to Scotland. So when we got back to, to Derby, I remember I spoke to I, like I asked him, McCarran, can I can I speak to him about a loan move? So I went in and I sat down and he was saying, like, what are you thinking? And I said, well, look, I said, Motherwell want me to go up there for a six-month loan in Scotland. I said, what are your thoughts on that, like, for myself at Derby going into your team and, 
and and just seeing what he what he, what his actual thoughts were on the loan move if it would be good for me. And I remember I was sitting there and he said to me, he said, "Look, he said we've been meaning to have this chat," and I kind of like was thrown back a little bit, not really understanding what he was meaning. And he said to me, "Look," he said, "Mark," um, he said. He said, you've had your difficult times at Derby. He said, you've had your injuries. He said, you've had your health scare. And he said, I think he said, your time at Derby is kind of like just flattening off. Now he said, you were starting off and he said, you were going higher, higher, higher. And he said, you're just kind of at the top of it now. And he said, I don't really see it going any further. And I looked at him really and I was kind of thinking, this isn't the conversation I came in for. What is happening here? And he spoke to me and, and all he said was, he said, look, he said, Football, he said, is about experiences. He said, you've had your experience at Derby. He said, now with this next year, he said, go out and gain more experience elsewhere and gain a career for yourself. He said, because Derby right now is like a comfort blanket for you. You're happy here. You know everybody. You know the surroundings. But your career isn't going any further. So I said to him, okay. So he said, look, I think going to Motherwell would be good for you. He said, they finished second in the SPL the season previous to that, which he said, look, Obviously, they're going to be doing really well. So he said, I, I genuinely believe um, going to Motherwell will do really well for you. But he said, it's like he said, Derby being this circle. And he said, that being your comfort blanket. He said, you need to start creating other circles away from that. And he said, have a broader experience of football rather than just one club. He said, because he feels as though I'd be shortening my options if I just stay at Derby. So at the time... I didn't really know how to take it. I walked out of his office thinking, I think I've just been released without even realising that I've been released. But I think now later down the line, I understand that he wasn't kind of building me hopes or expectation. He was genuinely giving me the opportunity to broaden me horizons, let's say, to go on and experience and new things. Because I think if I never had that conversation or if he never told me that, how happy I was at Derby and how comfortable I was, I would have just stayed. And then if I had stayed for six months to a year, I wouldn't have played a single minute. And then I would have been in a worse off position by the end of that season because I wouldn't have played any minutes. So I appreciate and I respect what he told me now. But at the time, I walked out and I was telling people in the change room, the manager wants me gone. I'm never going to play again. Like, what's happening? And people were like, what? So people couldn't understand it, but... Like I said, he, he he was actually helping me more than hindering me than what I thought at the time. You then went to Scotland and joined Motherwell on loan. Why did you decide to move to Scotland and not stay in England? <laughs> I, do, do you know what? I had the opportunity. Um, I didn't have, well, I didn't have too many opportunities, but it was only just as I started to agree all the paperwork for Scotland and I started to agree. And moving to Scotland and obviously when you go across the border to Scotland that has to be a six month loan, it can't just be a one month or a two month, it has to be six months so once the papers are signed it's kind of a done deal kind of thing and just as I obviously signed the papers for Motherwell and was on my way up there, Nigel Clough got in touch with me and he was at Sheffield United so I was kind of gutted at the time because I think if he had to come in sooner I probably would have went to um, Sheffield United with Nigel Clough because again I worked with him at Derby he liked me I liked him, I liked him as a manager and it probably would have worked out really well because they were in League 1 at the time but I think when Motherwell came in and the conversation I had with Steve McLaren going to Scotland was a whole new experience a whole new league and it was the Scottish Premier League so I think trying to see new experiences at, at a young age I thought well do you know what? what's the worst that can happen and 
the manager wanted me there. And to feel wanted by a manager is half the battle in football sometimes. We're a big Celtic fan. Celtic? Celtic, yeah. And the first time you went to a Celtic to Celtic Park was to play against them for Motherwell. You drew the game, that game, 1-1. What was that like? I loved every minute of it. I remember um, our first three games of the season, like we're in all different places. And I always, the minute I went up there, I looked to see when are we playing Celtic? Because I, I remember seeing European nights at Celtic when they played Barcelona and the atmosphere and everything like that. And obviously family and friends back at home who support Celtic, I thought, I'd love, I'd love to see the stadium and see the atmosphere. And I remember we turned up at the stadium and you're driving up towards it and everything just looks like amazing. It's like it's like a completely different world compared to some stadiums in 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 Scotland or even around the country. And I remember I walked straight out into the middle of the pitch. I was on the phone to me dad just saying to him, look, I'm in, I'm in Celtic Park right now. This place is unbelievable. And I remember going into the change rooms, but when you come out to warm up before the game, they play a lot of Irish songs. So I'm in the warm up singing along to all these Irish songs. And I think this is like the best feeling ever. But again, we were playing against the strong Celtic team. You know, at the time, Virgil van Dijk was the centre back. Um, they had a lot of, they had Chris Commons and people like that. And I remember I caught up with Chris Commons after the game, but they had a lot of, um, a lot of star players and, it was a very tough side, so to come away with a draw at Celtic Park, I think, regardless of of how the of how uh, how well they played or how well we played, I think it was just one of the, it was just like a perfect day for me. And I had like a lot of people on the on the phone to me afterwards, like friends back at home saying, "You messed up my bet today. I had Celtic to win and whatever." So it was it was brilliant. I loved every minute of it, and like I said, to have the opportunity of playing in Celtic Park for the very first time, I've actually seen the stadium. Like it was. It was like a, a a dream moment. After a season at Motherwell, you joined Luton Town. After you joined the manager, was sacked a few months later, and Nathan Jones became manager. The way he managed you didn't seem fair. How did you look back on your time under Nathan Jones? I look back at my time under Nathan Jones, and it's difficult to look back at it, to be honest. Um, it's a time in my career that I actually really struggled mentally, I think, towards football because, like, obviously, I didn't really speak about it as much at the time. You just think this is part and parcel of football, just get on with it. But I actually struggled a lot because it was a manager who came in and normally when a new manager comes in, it's a clean slate, which in in football is like, right, go and impress the new manager and then let him make his decision. And for whatever reason, he just never liked me. And I don't mean that as a person. He just never liked me as a player, but never would tell me that he didn't like me. He would just give me excuses. It's just, or I'm going to go with him instead of you today, which I'm doing really well. And it was it just, what he used to say to me sometimes never added up to how he was treating me. So when he, when he came in the building, and I never played a single minute, and every other player played minutes to show what they can do or create an opportunity for themselves. And like, I always look back at my time with him and say, if he gave me the opportunity to play and I didn't play well and I messed it up for myself, I can always look back and hold my hands up and say, look, I had the opportunity. I messed it up. It's my fault. But the fact that I never got given the opportunity is something that always played on my mind, wondering, like, why why was I the only one out of every player 
not to play. And I look at it and I remember the season that I came back um, in the pre-season and he took me squad number from me. He told me I'm on the transfer list. He had me training by myself. He had me training with the under-18s, the under-16s. Like, there wasn't a single thing that I was able to do pre-season. I had to do that on my own because the, the under-18s flew away to Italy. The fourth team flew away to Austria and I had to go into the training ground by myself and run on the treadmill. Like, there was nothing that, like, if, if you want to think of footballers having the high and mighty life, that I was getting the harsh end of football that people don't really know or speak about. And I found it really, really difficult. And I just couldn't understand. Um, and I was, and I got to the point where it was under him with how I was being treated that I actually contemplated moving back to Ireland. I actually thought to myself, I can't take this anymore because I never seen light at the end of the tunnel. I didn't see um, opportunities coming my way because if I'm not playing minutes, nobody's going to want to sign you. So you're kind of stuck in the middle of thinking, where do we go from here? But, I think under Nathan Jones was a massive learning curve and it, it, it made me kind of stronger, even like more stronger mentally than I'd ever did. I think towards football, I think because I seen it as an opportunity to keep being myself, keep coming in and trying hard every day and kind of create my own look, like not giving up and just not giving up and creating that consistency and that mental staleness that I think you need in football. I think he gave me that without him even realising that he gave me. So if you want to say I'm thankful for him treating me that way to kind of help me progress my career, I, 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 I welcome it. But it wasn't a nice time in my football career because it was something that I actually really struggled with. And like you say, it, it, also, it almost made me, made me leave football and give up. So, Personally, Ma- sorry. Go on, Lester, go. Personally to me, that man just sounds like a jerk. Do you know yeah. what? <laughs> I'm going to be blunt. Yeah, be, be, as blunt, be as blunt as you like. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mark, I was just thinking, you left Derby and the Stephen Claren, who had a very open and honest conversation with you. And then it seems like you had the opposite under Nathan Jones at Luton. Did Nathan ever kind of explain why you weren't selected or why you weren't picked? Do you know what? He actually never did, and that's probably one. That's probably another reason to why. Because, like you say, I had the comparison of the two. I had Steve McLaren, who probably at the time I didn't agree with, but he set me out straight, telling me, "Look, Mark, move on your horizons, create an opp- like an opportunity elsewhere." All I got told off Nathan Jones was, "You're on a transfer list, and your squad numbers taken away from you." Like not only why it's been the only reason or explanation I ever got off him was it's business. And telling somebody like that, I think, regardless of who you are, you can't just give somebody's livelihood um, a quote as it's business because it's business is somebody's life. It's somebody where I've moved away from home. I've lived away long enough to kind of be like, I don't have a family home here. I don't have somewhere where I can pack up my apartment that I was renting. I don't have it somewhere where I can leave all my bags and travel the country to go on trials at places. I need to know definite answers or if not definite, I need some sort of security somewhere because I've got nowhere else to go. And that is something that I think he really, for whatever reason, didn't understand because we had conversations on the phone on deadline day, um, on the transfer deadline day, we had conversations on the phone telling me, like, do you not fan- like, do you not back yourself going to other clubs? Do you not back yourself going out on trial? And I said, I do back myself. But I said, where am I going to leave everything? Where am I going to go? What am I going to do? I said, 
my phone wasn't ringing off off like the off the hook of teams wanting me to go to them. I said, so if I was to leave Luton now and take the offer that you're trying to give me to leave, I said I wouldn't be able. Like I said, I have nowhere to go. So I said at least Luton can be me me fallback, or it can be me insurance that at least I'm still getting a living or or, or still getting paid. Because look, at the end of the day, I think a lot of people had me misunderstood at Luton saying to me, look, um, are you injured? Yeah, you must be injured because that's all people kind of knew me by sometimes at certain clubs. But at the end of the day at Luton, there weren't many injuries. It was more of the fact of just the manager not liking me. And I do look back at it and just think, if he had to give me an explanation, if he had to give me a reason, if he had to try to help me get elsewhere, well, then I hold my hands up and say, at least you were fair to me. Look, I wasn't the player for you. But the fact of not letting me train with the first team, I'd only be allowed to train if somebody got injured. I'd, I'd, I wasn't allowed to train with them in pre-season. And giving me all these different excuses, whereas, like I say, it was it was something that I just never understood. But it it opened me eyes to the to the tough side of football, to the part that people don't speak about or never really makes it out there because there are two sides of football: the glamour where everybody loves it and things are going great for you, but you also have the opposite side of it where it does mentally test you and really push you to your limits. Of if you really want football you'll come through it, but it really tests your um, your mental strength, to be honest. Looking back at that situation now, if you were the manager of Luton Town, how would you have handled that situation? I think I would have handled it uh, the same way as um, Steve McLaren. I think I would have just been open and honest. Like, he wasn't bad to me about it. He wasn't... Um, he wasn't cold about it. He just basically said to me, look, these are new experiences, but... I would never neglect somebody and tell them not allowed to train with the team. I'd never neglect somebody if they're still if they're still a Luton Town player. I think it's very difficult to try and neglect a player to tell them you're not allowed to train with us. You have to train. I know I was 24 at the time and I'm training with 16, 17, 18 year olds. And that is something to me that I, I felt as though it was like a punishment. I was being punished for something that I didn't do or something that I had no control over. So I think I still would have tried like a fight where you try and still make it as comfortable as possible but you also try and help the player make phone calls make arrangements for him to get elsewhere and I do honestly believe that if that was something that um, I had to deal with I think I would have de- dealt with it in a, in a much different way You then joined Southport on loan and this and this is where you scored your first ever league goal can you talk us through that goal please? Yeah, it was my first ever time scoring a goal, so I don't think the celebration was anything to go by. But I remember um, we were when I went to Southport. Like obviously, I've always said this that I moved away from football. I moved away from Ireland to play football. I didn't move away for any other reason. So once I had the opportunity of getting to play for Southport, even though they were in the conference, I loved every minute of it. And I think it was to the point of we were playing against. Um, I think it was Woken we were playing against. And like the game, we, we were 2 0 up and I went up for the corner and I was standing on the six yard box. And it was probably the, the easiest header I've ever had in football where I stood in the six yard box, the ball came in and I just headed it down into the ground and I went in under the keeper. But um, yeah, I remember that game for obviously my goal, but then we were 3 0 up and we, we drew the game 3 3. So it didn't really end in the fairy tale scoring the goal and winning the game. But I think it was nice just to kind of experience 
my first kind of professional goal because as I said I've never experienced it before so it was it was it was nice that must have been a tough loan for you moving out of the football league is is it right that you were leaving in the loft of a of b of a b and b yeah you mean left typo error that says leaving this i think that meant left (laughs) communicative failure (laughs) i i like i i um i remember it was difficult because obviously when i started my career at derby county you think everything's going to be amazing and great and things were going okay then you play a a Motherwell in the SBL and you think everything's okay again so like I said it was it was something that I wasn't really prepared for and the National League is a very tough league it's it's something that I think a lot of people underestimate it's very physical very tough there's a lot of people who play for their livelihoods down there like week to week is their wage that pays their mortgage pays for everything in their life and some people have two jobs some people have a day job and go and play in the national league else like at the same time so there's a lot of um it's a, there's a lot of tough grafting people down there then it was difficult for me because obviously there's a pressure on your shoulders where, where you're coming from a higher league you're coming from the experience of certain things I've, I've played in so people already expect you this player must be good so you're gonna have to perform which like i say i think i enjoyed the pressures of that being on my shoulders because yeah, I was getting the feel of playing again. I forgot what it was like to play because at Nathan Jones I never played and I forgot what it was like to get ready for a Saturday and actually I'm playing rather than sitting watching a game of football. Mm. So I actually loved every minute of it. But like you say, when I was staying there, I was staying in a B&B and um, I stayed in the loft of the B&B. There was one room that never gets, never got rented out and like, don't get me wrong, the owners of the B&B were lovely. They were very accommodating with me. But the only room that would never get booked out was this one room. So I remember I had to walk to the very top of the hotel. And as I walked up there to the B&B, I opened up this door. It has its own key and everything. Walked up to the door. And as I pushed it open, there's like four little small um, single beds in each corner. And I think the size of, it, the size of an iPhone screen of a TV on the end of my bed. And that was it. And I was set, I was sitting there thinking, is this what it's come to? I'm in a loft. But at the same time, I was never one for living a lavish lifestyle. So like I said, to play football, I would have lived anywhere. I would have stayed in a loft of a and b I would have stayed anywhere. Like it never bothered me once I was actually enjoying my football. Like I said, I moved away from Ireland at 15. So I think staying in a loft was something that um, was easy to do. Like, because anything for football I would have literally done anything because when I had the difficulties at 16 with the heart surgery and getting told I'd never play again I never took it for granted after that well it could have been worse I remember this when Tom told me about this about this interview where the interviewer said he was his friends decided to be funny to stick him in the luggage area of the plane for the entire ride. <laughs> yeah, so that was last week, wasn't it, Alyssa? Yeah, that was amusing. That sounds brilliant. You that you then joined Newport County, and this is where you played the my the majority of your career. What was it? What was it about? Newsport that made you want to join the club? Well, funnily enough, the manager who took me to Southport, Dino Marmaria, um, 
he was he was the assistant manager in Newport County. So when I when I done my long move at Southport and then I went back to Newport, um, or when I done me yeah when I done me long move at Southport and went back to Luton, I remember obviously not playing, not playing, and then I got to about Christmas time, and I was obviously keeping myself fit, but just I needed games. That's all I needed. So I remember I sent a text to Dino Maria and I texted him saying, is there any chance you could get me to Newport? I said, like, I'm struggling here. And he said, leave it with me. I'll see what I can do. So he got back to me after, after New Year's Day game that Newport played. I think they lost. And he texted me saying, are you fit and ready to go? And I said, look, I said, I'm not played for like so many months, six, seven months. But I said, I'm fit and ready to go. I said, you just let me know and, and I'll be there. So he was um he was someone who was really pivotal in the in the opportunity to to get me to to Newport because like I said everything kind of works out in in the right way to take a step back on into the conference to then Dino Maria being my manager to then obviously get me another league club like it kind of worked itself out in all the right ways for taking those chances and I think once I ended up getting the opportunity to meet Graham Wesley who was the manager at the time. And Dino Maria getting me the opportunity to meet him. Like I said, I, I was going to jump at any last opportunity to actually sign for Newport. And if, if, if it wasn't for, for Dino Maria, I think I would have been struggling for a club. So I think that, that's that's the reason why going to Newport fitted out so well, because I knew of Dino Maria. He gave me the opportunity along with Graham Wesley. And, and like you say, I spent most of my career, uh, majority of my career there, and I loved every minute of it. You quickly became a regular in the Newport team. How did it feel to finally be a consistent player after a few seasons of insistency? Do you know what? I absolutely loved every minute of it. It was something where it was like going back to me days at Derby all over again. It was a place that liked me. It was a place that I liked, a manager that liked me, players that I got along with. And, and just to be one of them players where you know when you're training through the week, you are training for a purpose. Like that purpose was back a bit, back again to want to win a game of football, play for three points, getting that competitive edge back again. Like everything kind of just was was brilliant. Like and I loved every minute of it. And I think that's another reason to why I love being at Newport because when you become a fixture and you're in a place, as I say, when you're in a place that that appreciate you and like you. You play, I feel, you play your best football because you want to perform for that team. You're comfortable, you're happy and nothing else matters because, as you say, I think happiness is the main part of in football. If you're enjoying it, you're going to play your best football regardless of where it is. And I think having that opportunity to be consistent again and to be a fixture in the team, to know that you're going to play every week or give yourself the best opportunity to play every week. Like, I, I missed that. And I never realised how much I missed it until I had the opportunity at Newport to go do that. I want to take you back to the 6th of May, 2017. Newport City are playing not City at home. County, I mean, sorry. With one minute to go in the game, Newport County are about to be re- relegated from the Football League. But with almost the last kick of the game, Mark O'Brien uh, scores the, yeah, <laughs> the winning goal to ensure Newport County is in their football. This must be the most important goal in Newport County history. Can you talk to us about that game and that moment, please? Do you know what? Like, uh, still to this day, 
you'll never I'll never get tired of speaking about it. I think <laughs> it was something that was like such a really big build up because in the circumstances that I signed for Newport, like we were in the relegation zone, everything was going against us. And to kind of bring it to the last day of the season that if you win the game, you 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 beat relegation, you do the best comeback that a lot of people have been speaking about that obviously Newport were written off on months before that that we that they were destined to go down. And I remember on that day there was a 20 past five um kickoff. So there was a long day in it. And I remember I woke up at eight, nine o'clock in the hotel that I was staying in and I just couldn't shake off the feeling of I wanted to go back asleep, but the excitement, the nervous, the anxiousness, everything towards that game, I just couldn't get get back to sleep. And I was sitting up all morning. And I remember I phoned my dad and I was getting closer to the game. And I was speaking to me dad and my dad was like, look, he said, it's a one-off game. He said, all you can do is go out, what do what you've been doing and you should be okay. He said, just go out there and give it your all. That's all you can do. He said, a one-off game, give it everything. So then I said to me, Dad, I was like, look, I said, I'll phone you when I get to the stadium. He said, don't do that. And I said, why? He said, you haven't done that for the whole six months you've been at Newport. He said, don't do it on the most important day. So I was like, okay. So my dad was obviously feeling superstitious as well, but he never really told me that. So we got to the game and and just, we were getting, say, 1,500 to 2,000 fans maximum each game that we played at home in the whole build-up to that game. There weren't many fans turning up. And on the last day of the season, seven and a half thousand turned up. It was sold out. And the atmosphere of the place was 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 crazy. It was an atmosphere where I was thinking, like I've not played in anything like it. Like and I mean for the intensity of the game, I never played in anything like it. Like the actual significance of what the game meant. I like I never played in a pressure like it. But as the game's going on, we go one nil up. Mickey Demetrio scores the first goal which, again, nobody remembers, but <laughs> I always give him a mention in it. He scored the first goal. And like you say, everything's going according to plan. If we beat Hartley-Pills, if we beat Hartley-Pills result, we stay up, they get relegated. If we match their result, we stay up, they get relegated. If they better our result, we're relegated. So we were 1-0. Hartley-Pills were losing 1-0. We thought, perfect, this day is going just how we like it. And then, obviously, Notts County equalised in the second half. And when they equalised, um, Nicky Demetrio made a tackle, who then kicked it off Moishians, who then, when it bounced off Moishians, went behind our other defender, and their striker ran in, scored a goal. So, technically, I had an assist for Notts County on the same day as well. So, that was a... It was tough to take, because, obviously, we knew we were drawn. Hartleyville were still losing, so we were still okay. And then out of nowhere, I think there was five five minutes to go, ten minutes to go, and our manager shouting onto the pitch, get the ball forward, get the ball forward. He puts on two two more strikers. Hartley Pill were still one up against Doncaster, and we were 1-1, so obviously we were relegated at the time. And I got to around the 88th minute, and I looked over to the, to the bench, and I said, let me go up front. And it was the assistant manager, Wayne Hatswell, said to me, right, go on. So I just jogged up front, just thinking I was going to be a distraction for somebody else to run on and score a goal. I never actually thought I'd be the one scoring a goal. But I remember the ball going over my head and then it goes back over my head the other way. And Josh Labity, um, who was the captain at the time, followed up the ball going back over my head and he played the ball out wide on the volley. And David Pipe, um, 
as the as the right back. He cut in on his left foot, and it's the first time he's ever cut in on his left foot to try and cross a ball. And so everything that could have went right went right. He cut in on his left foot. He crossed the ball in, and that ball went. I remember it just dropping, and as it hit me chest, I could just feel the ball dropping nicely, and I just turned and hit it. And I even watched to go back myself, and the defender's so close to me. I look at it and go, any other time a defender blocks that, any other time it goes somewhere. And it was just like, it feels as though it's like kind of one of them moments in football that with everything that I went through at Luton, with everything that kind of I kind of had to put up with at Luton and keeping myself going, it was like one of those moments where you go, that was meant for me. All the hardship that I had, even with the open heart surgery, that was meant for me. Yeah, one moment of redemption to say, this is why I love football. This is the reason why you never gave up. And this is this is like you're reaping the rewards of not giving up, uh, really. And like I said, I just remember running off celebrating and one of the lads giving me a nudge. I'm tumbling. Like you could tell that like it was my first ever football league goal, as in, in the league, because like I said, I never knew how to celebrate, but everything just went into chaos. The fans were on the pitch and Honestly, it was one of those moments that I'll just never forget. And it was the first time that I cried for football because after the game, I remember the final whistle went. I just fell to me back. Mickey Demetrio jumped on me and one of the other players came over. All the fans are surrounding us. And I remember I just started feeling like so overwhelmed with emotion because I think so much hard work went into the final six months of that season. And for it all to come down like a cup final, and to come out of it to know we're not relegated everything everything's safe everything's great I've got a contract because not a lot of people knew that I had like a little deal with um, Graham Wesley when I signed um, he basically gave me under the gave me a, a kind of incentive when I played and said if we stay out of relegation you have a, a contract at Newport and we'll keep you for another two years he said if we get relegated we don't pay you in your summertime. You don't have a contract and the team's relegated. So in itself was a massive for me that gave me security of a new contract, gave me a football team that wanted me to play and it gave me it gave me a life again. It gave me a football life again that I've missed for so long. Like As I said, it's a moment that I'll, I'll never, ever forget. How many times a day, Mark, do you watch that goal on YouTube? <laughs> how many hours are in a day I watch it once every hour <laughs> answer 24 <laughs> well then there you go 24 24 times a day I tell you I could watch that I just never get sick of watching it like it's it's something where it's I kind of I'm in I kind of look at me sometimes because I was thinking I've never done that in my life and never never will I do it again but like you say some some of these moments just happen and for whatever reason it felt to me and I've kind of come up with my own conclusions why it felt to me but as far as I'm concerned the game finished 1-0 and Mickey Demetrio didn't even score <laughs> So Mark was that the season you were 11 points off safety with not many games to go was um was Michael Flynn manager at the time? Was it Michael so Flynn? Graham Wesley Graham Wesley. Uh, Graham Wesley got sacked in March and I remember Michael Flynn took over and yeah, I think there was 12 games to go and we were 11 points adrift. So technically, we weren't away, well, if we weren't 100% relegated. But I think for the football and world, everyone was like, right, Newport are relegated. So and so are relegated. Now it's about Hartleyville. But we just kept going and kept going and kept going. And, and like you say, I think 
him as a manager, he kind of gave me another new lease of life. Him and Wayne Hatswell were two people when they took over. I think we just mutually got on. Um, Wayne Hatswell being a defender himself, he's someone who I think was unbelievable for my career. He was he had very old school values, but new school kind of ideas, and he was very, um, he was very good at everything. How he came across with his messaging, like how he spoke to me, how he spoke to the players. And even Michael Flynn himself as a manager, two of them just complimented each other brilliantly. And like I said, I've had some of my best times ever in my football at Newport. I remember Michael Flynn. We interviewed him a while back. Oh, did you? Yeah. In person. Oh, lovely. Yeah. All the way over in, where was his? Walsall now, yeah. So we went down to Walsall because we're, we're from Wolverhampton. So just down from Walsall, oh, nice. we went and spoke to Michael Flynn, didn't we? Mm-hmm. He, was, he was really good, spoke yes. very highly of you in that goal. No, I'm the one that gave him a career. That's all I keep telling him. <laughs> Go on, then, yeah, you better hope he isn't tuning into this. <laughs> or he'll be calling you up after going, what do you mean? I'm going to be waiting on a text coming through on my phone anytime soon. <laughs> all right, I got a question to say. <laughs> You've had some great games with Newport, Newport County in the Cup. You play teams such as Leicester, Spurs, Leeds and Man City. What were those games like for you? You know what? I absolutely loved them. Like I think when everybody in the country loved the FA Cup because it's that kind of underdog fairy tale that everybody loves. The fact of a team that shouldn't be playing anywhere near the Premier League team has the opportunity to come up against them. And... I think when we got a chance to play Leicester, I, I didn't get the I got I got to play the last ten minutes of that game, but to be involved in it and see the lads win, it was brilliant. Um when we got to play Leeds United, when we got to play the City, that, that kind of stands out to me as you can't get any better than Manchester City, because at the time I think they were one of the best well, they still are one of the best in Europe, but they won the Premier League that year. And I look at it and just think Man City and themselves were just a team that I never thought like you're looking at superstars standing in front of you you're playing against superstars and I remember we're going into the captain's offices and you speak with the referee before the game and David Silva is walking out and you're shaking his hand and you're thinking I'm playing against this fella and he's somebody who's won World Cups won European Championships and all I ever done was be in a relegation battle with Newport County and score one goal so like I'm standing in a room with this player thinking I get to actually play against them and like you say it was um, it was unbelievable experiences and you just get to see the whole new life of football of the FA Cup because it was something that growing up everybody watches the FA Cup and match of the day and you think I'd love to be one of them teams that create an opportunity and the fact that I got to be part of that in a team um, like I say they go down as some of the best memories that I've had What was it like to be captain against Man City? I loved every minute of it. I literally loved every minute of it. Like I was scared because they beat Chelsea 5-0 the week before that. So I was thinking if they can beat Chelsea 5-0 at Stamford Bridge, they're going to beat Newport at Rodney Parade and it could be a lot more than 5-0. But like, I think when we went out to warm up, there was like 5,000 of our fans already in the stadium chanting and singing for us. We had 10,000 fans on the day. Um in our home stadium and I think the whole night in itself nobody gave us a chance and I think that's what we used to love as a team nobody giving you a chance and proving people wrong 
And I think we've done that with so many FA Cup games and so many things, just like saving ourselves from relegation. We were always had like that underdog fighting mentality. And the fact that it was in that same situation where a lot of people were saying, now, careful they don't score 10 past you, careful they don't score 8 past you. And no one were giving you a chance. And we were kind of thinking to ourselves, well, what's the worst that can happen? They beat us 4-0, it's expected. But if we have that one chance or that one good game or that one good FA Cup like game that you kind of create history by beating Manchester City, that can always happen. And I remember we were nil-nil all the way for 55, nearly 60 minutes. And keeping Man City at the time, nil-nil at half-time, was even an achievement. Because I think I remember someone telling me a, a statistic that I think we were like the fourth or fifth team in Europe to keep Man City to a nil-nil for 45 minutes in the whole of Europe and everything that they played against. So to be part of like kind of a little small group like that for a little place like Newport was was unbelievable. But yeah, like the game, the game itself, like you're playing against Gabriel Jesus, David, uh, David Silva, you're playing against Sane, Mares. Um, all all these all these top end players, John Stones and stuff like that, and like you say, it's what you wanted as a footballer your whole life. You watch the Premier League your whole life, and you sit there and think, "I'd love to play in the Premier League," and that's the closest that some people and even myself would get to that. And to get to test yourself against that, it was it was honestly it was it was unbelievable. And again, it's it's one of those memories that just go down for me that I'll never ever forget. So Alyssa mentioned that we spoke to Michael Flynn a few weeks ago and um, I texted him yesterday and said, we're speaking to you. Have you got any questions or any stories that we uh, can ask? Of course you did. Ask Mark. <laughs> so yeah. Michael Flynn replied and said, ask Mark about the time Ben White was declared fit on the way to play Spurs. <laughs> yeah, so basically, right? I remember um, before we played, when we played Tottenham and we got the replay, um, from the home game, we drew 1-1. I remember uh, we we had like two or three games after that and Ben White came off with his hamstring in one of the games. So the whole build-up to Tottenham that week, I was starting. I was playing against Tottenham. I was in the starting team. I was going to be playing at Wembley. This is like, I was, I was waiting for the opportunity to play again because obviously, as I said, Ben White was doing really well at the time. So you're sitting kind of boys at time and this was my opportunity to, to play against Tottenham. So I thought this is brilliant. So I remember um, we were traveling. We were traveling on the Monday to our hotel in London. And as we were traveling on the Monday, um, like we were sitting down the back of the bus. Michael Flynn was sitting alongside us just talking away to us or whatever. And he goes, I've got a phone call. I've got a phone call. So he rushes down the front of the bus on a phone. And we're all sitting there. And like I said, we done team shape that day, so we knew the team, and I was starting. We knew the players who were playing, so there was wasn't an issue. And he ran to the front of the bus, and as he came back down, he looked at me and goes, "Well, OB, that's you dropped." <laughs> and I looked at him and goes, "Ah." He goes, "Ben White is fit. They scanned his leg again. They found out that he's got scar tissue on his hamstring, so it's nothing new. So Ben White will be travelling to the thing. So OB, uh, I'm sorry to tell you, but you're dropped." And start laughing. And I was thinking, is he joking or is he actually being deadly serious or what's happening? And uh, yeah, I wouldn't say that we had a falling out over it, but I'd say um, we had the team meeting on the Tuesday. And I just thought, well, look, if 
Ben White is playing, I'll actually be really annoyed right now because how he's told me and laughed about it was actually really annoyed. And uh, he put up the team sheet and I think for a full week after that, I, I had minimal contact with him. We didn't speak. I didn't want to even look him in the eyes because I thought, you know what, there was me one chance to try and play in Wembley against Tottenham. And I said, you took it away from me or whatever. But again, like you say, I think that's part and parcel. But I think to drop a bombshell on me like that as, a, as we're going to Wembley as a, starting, as a starting player and then just laugh at me and say, well, that's you, drop Ben White as fit and just laughed at me. And I thought, well, what do you do if that's your manager? <laughs> There's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> Silently death glare them when they're not looking. <laughs> exactly. So I smiled about it a little bit and goes, ha that's a good one. And then when, when he's not there, I was kind of thinking, am I actually dropped or is he actually being serious? So like I said, that was his way of dealing with things. Um. You played in the 2019 playoff final at Wembley against Tramir. You got sent off in the last minute of the game and you lost the game 1-0. What are your memories of that game? Um, I have good memories and obviously the bad memories of being sent off, but I, I loved it. I think for everything that like myself and a lot of the lads have gone through at Newport, I think to get, to get us to Wembley in a playoff final considering four years previous to that we were in a relegation battle was a massive achievement and I think the squad that we had that year um, going to Wembley like it was full of captains there was like Josh Labadee Jamil, Matt Bodrick Armand Mickey Demetrio Scott Bennett Josh Sheehan there's all these names Dan Butlers that every single individual one of them could all be a captain of the team and the fact that we had them all in one team and I got to be captain of that was a like such a proud moment for me like to get to walk out at Wembley as a captain for your team that like like I say any single one of them could have been a captain literally could have been a captain on that field and I loved every moment of it like the atmosphere of Wembley my dad was over my old manager who seen me grow up from the age of 8 to 15 um, from Cherry Orchard back at home he was at the game and um, the Derby scout who brought me over to Derby he was at the game with me with my dad as well so to have them at the game watching me when I played at a local park at 14 like literally just up the road from me to then playing at Wembley like 11 years later is something that like I say it's it, it was a massive proud moment for me and I loved every minute of it but again as the game went on I think we deserved to win the game I think we played really well for, for the 90 minutes that was in it but it was a moment of clever play by by the striker James Norwood it was clever play by him I think it was a, it was something where in the 89th minute I got too tight to him on, on the touchline and as I thought the ball was going over my head he spun this way but as I put my arm out around him he kind of wedged his arm into me like I was holding him and it looked like I was like holding on to him but my hands came came out at the wrong at the wrong time and as I put my hands out, he kicks his leg back and it looks like I've just grabbed him to the ground. I fall over. So like I said, he, he, he's he's kind of been really clever there and done really well. And, and like you say, I think that's part and parcel of football. He kind of roped me into a situation I shouldn't have been involved in. But again, yeah, I just look at it and say it was just one of them moments that probably wasn't meant to be. And uh, yeah, I'll always kind of regret getting sent off at, at Wembley. But I don't regret the day in itself because I loved every minute of it getting to play at Wembley. What does the city of Newport and the fans mean to you? It means a lot to me. Um, I think for all like the stuff that I've gone through at Newport, I think with 
the hardship that I came in under the circumstances of being in a relegation battle and you see what you see what this place means to the fans when we do so well because us as a as a football club really generate the the public really generate the town itself because when you have the FA Cup games when you have the big cup games when you have big games in the league when you're being successful in the league it brings everybody together the stadium starts filling up a lot more there's more money coming into the city and the fans the, the fans are brilliant like I, I love the fans like I loved our ground for the fact of everybody hated going there it was like a little fortress for us like anybody who's coming down to Newport it's going to be a wet day it's going to be a horrible pitch it's going to be a team that wants to kick you it's going to be a horrible atmosphere the fans are nasty like the fans are horrible to the away team. So like that whole atmosphere, you just fed off and the fans were, like I say, they've been brilliant for me. They they've they have been brilliant for me. And like I said, it's even like getting sent off at Wembley. The fans backed me and, and got behind me and, and said, right, look, dust yourself down, you go again. It was one of these things that happened. And like you say, you kind of take that and you and you remember that because I'm sure there's plenty of other fans around the country. If you've done that for that team, they could probably say a lot worse to you than what the Newport fans did to me. And like I said, it, it, it's a place that's grown on me year after year. And like I say, I'm still here. I still have a chance and I still work here. And I love, I want to see the place be even more successful to where we took it and where we should have been and could have went. But I still want to be part of that for when it does happen. Do uncomfortable situations bring the best or worst out of you? And can and can you think of a time where you're in an uncomfortable position? I'm I'm sure you can think of at least what a few, one of a few. Um, hmm. yeah, like in if I'd say in an uncomfortable position, I think I I actually I actually enjoy uncomfortable positions to an extent. Like I kind of put myself in positions like, and this is even going back to my football days. Like I put myself in them positions to be uncomfortable because I felt as though to be nervous or anxious or to feel like kind of a challenge ahead of me is something that would bring the best out of me. So like you say, you're playing an FA Cup game and you're playing against some of the best teams and uh, one of the best teams in the world. I I, pl- like, I I looked at it and thought, I played really well there. I play in other games and I've been in situations where like at, at Luton, the fact of being in an uncomfortable situation of actually speaking up for myself and been in an uncomfortable situation of saying I'm not going to play here but to keep myself going it brought the best out of me again and I always enjoyed the fact of again being the underdog and proving people wrong I think that's what always brought the best out of me to get to prove somebody wrong who might doubt me and that goes all the way back from when I was 16 getting told I'd never play football again after my fourth open heart surgery to prove a doctor wrong that I played for 11 years like I always enjoyed the fact of saying well if you think I can't do it well I'm going to do everything in my power to do it so being uncomfortable while I'm trying to do it brought the best out of me to give me uh, that best opportunity to, to be successful. I see. You're a, you told me not to do it, so I'm going to do it anyway, kind of person. Exactly. Exactly. And that and that's literally that's literally the, the, the way that that one moment at 16 kind of progressed me from my career and kind of set me up for a career to say, OK, if somebody doubts you, well, then you can either run away from it and hide or you can face it and say, right, I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm not going to give up and I'm going to one day prove you're wrong that I'm going to go on and be successful and what you thought of me doesn't matter anymore. You then felt a change with your heart whilst you were at Newport. Can you tell us about this and what happened? So again, it was during COVID. um, We had the lockdown and 
like football obviously came to a halt for two, three months. And in that two, three months, we had like off sea, like we had like programs from our club to say keep fit. We don't know when football's starting back again. So I, I remember I went out cycling every day and um I went out with one of the one of the football lads, Matty Dolan, um, who was obviously a good mate of mine. We went out cycling every day. And as we were going out cycling every day, keeping fit, you just try and keep on going because as you say, nobody knows what COVID was at the time. And there was one evening, um, I think it was around March time. March, April time, I think it was, or it might have been May. It was one of the other. Like I can't remember all the all days came into one under COVID. But I remember I I was sitting in my apartment in one evening and I just remember I got like a big thump in my chest and I didn't know what it was. I didn't know how it was. I didn't know what it could be. But I just felt as though something wasn't right. I couldn't really catch my breath. And as days went on, like laying on my left hand side, I couldn't lay on my left hand side without not been able to breathe so I found our club doctor Daniel Vaughan and I spoke with him and I said look I said I keep getting this palpitation in my chest and I don't really know what it is um is there any chance anybody can have a look at it but during COVID all the hospitals are packed up full like this it, it was it was difficult to get in touch but I described his symptoms and he told me at the beginning it might be an optopic beat which he said is something where he said your heart will lose rhythm for a second and then all of a sudden it'll go back in just cough for whatever. And I thought, okay, that's fine. He said, normal people, he said, go through this day on a daily basis. So again, for another couple of days, I'm still going out cycling every day, not really knowing what it is. And then spoke. I said, doc, I think I need a scan. I said, I'm getting more tired every day. I said, I feel as though I'm getting more, like I'm getting more unfit. The more I do, I said, something's not right. And it's just that good feeling of knowing something isn't right, that I'm not just going to accept it. And he said, okay, look, he said, I'll try and I'll try and see what I can do. So he, he got me a scan, which, like I said, in those times was so difficult. And our, our club doctor, like he was he was someone who like I'd actually have down as a as like a close friend now. He's helped me through so, so much. He got me a scan and I went in, had the scan, and I remember I sat down in the doctor's office and he just said to me, he goes, Mark, your valve is leaking. And he said, It's leaking quite badly now. He said it is really bad. He said, um, yeah, you're going to need open heart surgery. And I remember I just kind of sat there and I just put my head in my hands like this and I just said, not again. Basically, I goes, oh, not again. And I just burst into tears. I just started crying. I didn't know how to take it because I knew after my first open heart surgery at 16, I always said to my family and friends that whenever this has to happen again, I said, I'm going to... I'm going to retire from football. So I said, I'm giving it one open heart surgery for football and one open heart surgery was going to be for life. And that was a plan I had set out in my head. So regardless of whether I played 11 years or one year, after that second open heart surgery, I was calling football a day. So like that whole thing of point, like knowing that I had to retire, I just burst into tears. I didn't know how to accept it. Um, I think knowing that I needed open heart surgery as well kind of came into, came into the fold because I wasn't 16 anymore. I understood the significance of what open heart surgery means. Um, to go through all that again, I think, was something that I was really scared about. And like I said, I knew I had to stop playing football, which is all I've ever known me whole like from majority of my life. So it was um it was quite difficult to take. And I think um looking back at it now, 
like I say, it was probably one of the most scariest times in my life so far that I've ever had. <laughs> I'm trying to hide this listening. <laughs> but I'm still okay. I'm here now, anyway. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> Do you look back on your career and be thankful that you were able to have such a good career or do you look back with frustration and anger do you know what I think at at the beginning I think I look back with frustration and anger a little bit because obviously I think everybody gets dealt different circumstances in their career whether that's injury wise health wise or whether you have a, a clean run through when you have all the best years of your life but I looked at it in a bit of frustration, thinking if I didn't get an ace, like a crucial ligament or a knee injury at that point, maybe I could have went here. And they're all if, ifs, buts, and maybes. But I also think I look back at it and I'm actually thankful and grateful for the career I've had. And I don't have any regrets. And I think that's something that I've kind of accepted that I don't have any regrets in football. And I'm kind of glad that I don't because everything stems back to when I was 16. I got told I'd never have a professional career at all. And the fact that I got to have 11 years. <laughs> yeah, that says something different. Yeah. And the, fact, and, and, and the fact that I got to have 11 years and the fact that I got to have, like, the best, some of the best memories of my life, the fact that I got to still play football regardless of what level it was at, like, that open-heart surgery taught me a lot at 16 for such a young age to go, look at, appreciate every day that I've got in football because look at you're lucky to one still be playing football and two to still be here so everything else is a bonus so I never done anything that I like regret in football everything that I done was down to my own choices or the circumstances I was dealt and I just kept flowing with it and rolling with it and seeing where it took me and obviously it it, it, it didn't do too too bad I don't think <laughs> um nearly finished Mark so I want to say that um someone got in touch with us on Twitter um Gary Wood and he says Mark's a county legend. Despite his injuries and tough times in Newport, he always gave everything and was an inspiration to everyone. I absolutely admire his resilience and ter- determination to overcome the challenges that he has faced and is still facing. Do you know what? Like, that's why sometimes I think even to, to hear stuff like that, like, I still like, appreciate everything that people do say because sometimes I look at it and I think I've only just lived how my life has unfolded. Like, I, I don't feel it's that way have tried to do anything to, to stand out for people or I've not tried to be an inspiration for people. I've just lived my life and I've just wanted, even even now till this day, I just want to be an example for people to show that, well, if I can do it after the difficulties that I've had and the things that I've gone through, I want to be an example for younger kids or adults to kind of say, well, look, if you put your mind to it or you want to achieve something or you want to be something regardless of your situation or your health or anything that might come your way do you know what you can achieve it and it mightn't be to the level you're expecting but you will achieve some sort of level of it and as I said it's it's something like to hear words like that just goes to show that like I'm glad I made like an impact and maybe it wasn't on an illustrious career but I made an impact on people and and that's all I ever wanted. You mentioned previously about anxiety you felt throughout your career how did you delay with your anxiety and did you do with it the correct way do you know what um my anxiety through football like i only ever took it as nervousness i only ever took it as i was nervous for a game um 
but I took it as it was a good feeling. I had it programmed in my head that this is a good feeling. If I'm nervous, it means I care. And if it means I care, it means I'm going to give everything on the pitch. And like you say, no matter what team I played for, I played I played like my heart was on my sleeve. If a ball was down at someone's foot and I had a chance to stick my head in it to block it, I would have thrown my head at it. Like I just love the fact of feeling nervous and feeling, like I say, I, I love the fact of feeling pressure on my shoulders to say, look, I want to thrive in this. I want to, I want to show what I can do. And I think the fact of being anxious, I took it as a positive to say, look, it, it must mean something to me. If I'm nervous and anxious, it means as though I care about it. And like I said, it, it, it kind of prepared me mentally and it focused me to feel as though now I have to. And I put pressure on myself. Like I, I used to make a mistake. If I mess up in a game, we're going to lose. It's my fault. So I put pressure on myself to say, I have to play well for everything to go well. And sometimes it didn't always go well, but I just had that mindset of thinking it's all on my shoulders. And that's what I felt as though brought the best out of me. Alyssa, do you want to go to number 30? Okay. What are your ambitions for the future? I'd say my ambitions for the future is is to try and use my story to help people. Try and be an example for people going forward that the whole life after football does exist. I think where I'm at right now, I think I'm enjoying working at Newport and being a player care where I get to hopefully help the younger lads, mentor them or help them mentally or physically in a way where I go this is the path that I went on or this is what you need to do to get to a certain level or to just try and help people and I think where I'm at right now is to try and help people and 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 get myself out there a lot more even speaking wise to kind of be be um be an example I think for a lot of people is something that I want to I want to see for my future and my life to use what I've gone through and use it as a positive rather than seeing it as a retirement daily from football and rather see it as I didn't really get the career that I wanted. I rather see it as two open heart surgeries, poor Mark O'Brien. I want to see it as, no, I've had all these things and it's put me in this position to then share my story. So I look at it and say, I've had to go through these things to then for my next chapter in life is to going to hopefully help people. I think I might be wrong. Tom, do you remember, I think it was before Christmas, we spoke to Lee Mears, um, used to play rugby for England and Bath. And I think he, he retired early from rugby because um, of a heart condition. I can't remember off the top of my head what it, what it was, but I remember him, him talking about talking about it and he went for a routine heart scan when he was playing rugby and he was playing for England at the time and he found out he had this, I can't remember what it was, something wrong with his heart. Yeah. And um, had to retire early. So yeah, maybe it's is it is it quite common? Do you know? Is it? Do you know? Do you know what? Other? I I do believe it's probably more common than not nowadays, and I don't know why. I don't know whether it's just because I'm a lot more alert to it, or maybe social media is getting bigger, so people can share their stories a lot more. But like you say, I think it is something where it does seem to be coming out a lot more. And like I remember when I had me first heart scan, when they picked up on the on the defect. They told me that they could scan 20 people and over half could all have defects, but it doesn't mean over half are all going to suffer because of it. So like they say everybody can have defects with their heart. It's just whether it's going to be a problem or not, and they can judge it off that. So I just think in sports people, and this is like my opinion, I think the heart screening is such a massive process, but at the same time, 
sometimes it's not definitive because you look at the likes of Ericsson, you look at Fabrice Mwamba and people like that. These are people that have obviously gone and had really massive cardiac um, arrests live on, on, on a massive football stage. Ericsson going to a European Championship that has that this has happened to. And I look at it and say that it's not always definitive. I think the only thing you can do is 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 constantly stay checked and just be careful. Like, and if you keep yourself checked, I think it's just one of them things that these things happen, and for whatever reason they happen. But I think you'd you'd be doing well if you had a cure or if you had something to try and let's say if you had something that could prevent it. I think you'd be a multi-billionaire right now because I don't think it's something you can prevent. I think it's just something you can be careful with and get checked for. But like you say, I think it's just one of those things. It's 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 one of those lucky things you either get affected by it or you don't. So then how did how did you feel then when you saw Christian Eriksen at the Euros? Did... Do you know what? I struggled with it. I remember I was back home in Dublin and I was speaking. We were watching the game and I remember... I, he, he, like they threw the ball into him and as he got a throw in I remember him just going straight down so I thought it's one of these where footballers nowadays get a little push in the back and they go down and they get a free kick but I remember he was laying there and the players running over to him and the camera zoomed in on his face and I remember his eyes were just like just so wide open and I thought what is happening and I seen everybody like calling ambulances doctors everything onto the pitch and I had to switch the telly off because Everything that I was nope. kind of old. <laughs> yeah, everything. Not watching. That, <laughs> everything yeah. that I everything that I overcame, or everything that I was overcoming, I think from the operation, I think I looked at it and I thought that could have been me. And I think all the negative thoughts came back into me, saying that actually could have happened to me. How lucky am I? So, like on one hand, yeah, you're saying you're lucky, but I like the negative thoughts that were giving me such like anxiety and giving me the health anxiety that I've, that I've developed and all these different things all rushed back to me. So it was difficult. It was actually very difficult for me to even to watch something like that because it was so close to when I've only just recently had open heart surgery to then see something like this. It just felt, it felt really strange to me. Before we finish, we would like to play a game of you that we uh-huh. play with all our guests. Uh-huh. The Lovely. game is Wrong answers only. <laughs> we'll ask you a range of questions and you have to give us the wrong answer. Are you ready? Right. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> Favourite ground you've played at? Oh, Kennel Wars Road. Best player you ever played with? Best player I've ever played with? Um, Mickey Demetrio. Highlight of your career? So these have to be wrong answers. Um... Highlight of my career would have been scoring for Southport. <laughs> Favourite manager you played for? We all know the answer to this one. <laughs> Nathan Jones. <laughs> <laughs> the best thing yeah. about Ma- Mark O'Brien is? The best thing about Mark O'Brien is, I would say, a ginger beard. <laughs> 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 Thank you for answering those questions. Each week on the podcast, we like our guests to ask questions to each other. So we get a guest to ask a question, but they have no idea who the question is going to be for. This week's question comes from our previous guest, who was former Liverpool player. 
and, and manager Sammy Lee, and he asked, where in the world would you rather be than sat here right now? That's still sounds now. Where would I rather be? I would say somewhere really sunny and like somewhere where like on a beach, on a beach somewhere sunny because I think I've I've had enough of all this cold weather now. <laughs> and I'm from Ireland and I've had enough of this cold weather. Like this is in, in South <laughs> Wales. In South Wales, it's uh, next level. Okay. Could you do the same, please? Can you think of a question for our next guest, please? But we aren't going to tell you who the guest is. The question can be anything you want. Anything. As long oh. as it's appropriate. <laughs> yeah, <obviously. laughs> oh, um, I would say my next question would be, if you could choose any other path in life, what would you choose to do or what would you choose to be and why? Gotcha. All right. I would just like to say a big thank you again to everyone who listens to our podcast. We really appreciate it. Please continue to leave reviews and pass our podcast on to your friends and family. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, Mark. We really enjoyed speaking with you and it means so much to us as a school to be able to have the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks very much for everything. Thanks for the opportunity. The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism, and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine.